0: about almost eight months along, I had not felt the movement like I normally felt. And I was kind of concerned because three weeks previous, I'd been to the doctor, and she was a week ahead of her growth, and I was all excited, and I was going to name her Shalom Adele. So the day that I started not feeling movement, because I'd had this experience before of threatening to lose babies. I knew what to do, so I went and got my orange juice and drank my orange juice because that sugar, high sugar is supposed to like wake that baby up. So I went to drink the orange juice and waited a while and there was no movement. And So I got a little bit more concerned and I then lay down on my tummy, which she did not like me laying down on my tummy, no kicking, nothing. I thought, oh no, my heart just started to race even more. So then I called the doctor, and he said, come on in. So during this time period of great uh, silence and quiet time, um, I did a lot of praying. And I, I held my baby, my, my tummy, and said, are you OK? And just praying that it should be OK. While I was praying, I had a beautiful experience. In the corner of my, I call it my little parlor. I love the old-fashioned names. And she's standing there in the corner, her back towards me, and um, she had a short haircut, and she was about the age of 16 or 18 years old. And she turns around so quickly, and her little hair just flips so cute, and she had this smile on her face. And she looked at me, and she said, Thank you for my body. And then she was gone, and I'm like okay, wait a minute, did I just see what I saw? Did I just experience her spirit? And so when I got to the doctors, they hurry monitored and the baby's heart rate was just dropping very quickly. So he gave me the option. He said, Christine, you can, we can just let the baby go. Um, and I said, but Dr. Parker, you've seen miracles. He said, yes, I have, and I said, I want a miracle. So they hurry and rush me in to do emergency C-section. Of course, I was out and under so fast. and, And then when I came to, they told me that they had tried for 23 minutes to resuscitate her, but she had gone. Later over time, I realized I did get my miracle. She let me know that she was okay, and that she didn't need any more time here. She just needed to get her body. So after about three days, we had a little um, family gathering down at the cemetery where we were to bury her with her her brother. Um, A dear brother-in-law came up to me afterwards. and He said, do you know what shalom means? He says it means hello, goodbye, and peace. And I thought, how fitting. Because she said hello and goodbye the very same day. But it also brought peace with that.
1: I've seen a lot of spiritual phenomena in the emergency department which could not be explained by medical science.
2: We know that people are having these spiritual
3: experiences. They're widely reported by people who have nothing to gain by reporting them. And those experiences shouldn't be written off. One or two experiences is anecdote,
4: but many is data, and we can learn from it.
5: I think you would be hard-pressed to find a single moment when there weren't any number of prominent philosophers, poets, theologians, writing about, arguing for belief in the eternal pre-existence of the human soul. An entire universe opens up to
6: us and we understand who we really are.
2: The heavens are speaking to us. We want to make sure that we're listening. Sarah Hines, and I was born and raised in Eastern Tennessee, so I'm a Southern girl, and had a wonderful life there, a wonderful childhood, and moved away when I was 19. Moved to Utah, and that's where I met my husband. Hi, Candace. You want a drink? We have nine children, and for many years they were all home at the same time. So it was a very busy time. But I had had some some special experiences with my children before they were conceived or born, in that I would have dreams of them or feeling them near. And I wondered, do other mothers and fathers have these experiences? And so it brought me to a strong desire to inquire and to see if I could collect other accounts. I made up a flyer, actually mailed it, it was before email, mailed it out to newspapers and parts around the world. And I started receiving stories. The stories are, they're personal, they're often very sacred. And before I knew it, I had my first book, which we titled Life Before Life. That was published in the early 90s. I received quite a lot of uh, opportunities for publicity with that book and radio, television, and more stories came in. And before I knew it, I was ready for a second book. The second book paperback went to Simon Schuster Pocket Books, New York City. So I was now a national author, and I had pioneered actually a new study with the help of my husband. And with those opportunities came in stories from around the world, from people of different backgrounds, races, religions, and that was able, you know really able to elevate the study. And so my publisher, quite soon asked for another book and we titled that coming from the light at this point we have republished coming from the light we have published that now as the announcing dream dreams and visions of unborn children well i was fortunate to marry a wonderful man who has supported me in my studies When we put together Coming from the Light, I asked him for an analysis of the studies, and we realized this study needed a term, it needed a name. We thought about near-death experience, so together, Brent and I coined pre-birth experience.
4: As a psychologist, I've been trained in the uh, study, analysis, and treatment of human behavior. And as I began studying these stories, the primary other research that could be considered authoritatively scientific was going on in the field of near-death studies. In 1969, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a fun, feisty little physician from Switzerland, who came to America and was part of establishing the hospice program in America. She published a book called On Death and Dying. And it was one of the first really scientific studies. And then uh, just a few years later in 1975, Dr. Raymond Moody published a book titled Life After Life. And he explains that by this time, he'd had about 150 patients that had died clinically. And yet, when they were revived, they described all these things that they experienced while their body was dead.
2: A near-death experience is when someone dies, and their spirit leaves their body. They're aware that they're leaving their body. They often look back and see their body behind. And a remarkable thing in a near-death experience that I learned is the most prevalent reason people are sent back is because they meet their unborn children on the other side. And they're told they need to go back because their mission in life has not been completed.
4: One of the objections from some pure scientists, let us say, oh, this kind of information is anecdotal. But one of the things that uh, really impressed me in, in one of the researches that I read, this psychologist, he said, yeah, one or two experiences is anecdote, but many is data, and we can learn from it. That inspired me. And so I began analyzing the pre-birth experience from kind of a a similar position. In the 30 years that we have been dealing with this research on pre-birth experiences, about 53% of the pre-birth encounters occur before conception, leaving 47% in our samples that occurred between uh, conception and birth. We also found that 63%, almost two-thirds of these experiences, came to mommies. 13% to future daddies. 24% of these experiences came to grandparents, to siblings. We have now analyzed hundreds of pre-birth experiences, and I've gone through them, many of them, and. Uh, come up with different types of pre-birth experience that occurs. Sixteen pre-born beings in one sample were witnessed in dreams appearances while the experiencer was asleep. Twenty-nine occurred in visions. When the recipient was uh, awake and alert, some of these experiences, it's not the child that comes, but it's somebody else announcing that the child is ready to come to Earth. Twenty pre-born experiences that I've studied heard the voice of a pre-born spirit. Telepathy in 13 of the experiences where the message came not through the ears, but into the mind. Twenty-nine had an escort of some type with them, and in the near-death research, There are many escorts and greeters who are identified when a person leaves this life. Some people have deja vu memories or flashbacks, and 10 individuals saw a brilliant light around the pre-birth soul.
2: Every account that I have heard or read is very unique. It's very individual to that person. A story that may touch one person's heart, may, may touch a different person you know, in a different way or a different story will touch them. Dr. Kenneth Ring, who wrote the book Heading Toward Omega, has said that people can change and become enriched not only by having a near-death experience or by having a pre-birth experience, but by reading the accounts of those who have them can cause the same kind of enrichment to the individual.
0: I was born into a very large family. That was a wonderful experience for me. After I graduated from high school, I went off to be a nanny and came back home, and then I met my first husband. We were only married seven years, and then he uh, died at age 27 with a brain tumor. Not too soon later, I met my husband now, Scott Greenouch. He had two children. He also lost his first wife to cancer, a brain tumor as well, and she was 22. So we start our little group of his two and my three, and and then we ended up having seven more together. Our first child that we had was a stillborn boy. I was about seven months along with him. And then I had other children, and then one of my pregnancies, my ninth pregnancy, was quite the Uh, profound for me. When I was about almost eight months along, I had not felt the movement like I normally felt and I was kind of concerned because three weeks previous I'd been to the doctor and she was a week ahead of her growth and I was all excited and I was going to name her Shalom Adele. So the day that I started not feeling movement, because I'd had this experience before of threatening to lose babies, I knew what to do, so I went and got my orange juice and drank my orange juice because that sugar, high sugar, is supposed to like wake that baby up. So I went to drink the orange juice and waited a while, and there was no movement. And so I got a little bit more concerned, and I then lay down on my tummy, which she did not like me laying down on my tummy. No kicking, nothing. I thought, oh no, my heart just started to race even more. So then I called the doctor, and he said, come on in. So during this time period of great uh, silence and quiet time, um, I did a lot of praying. And I, I held my baby, my, my tummy, and said, are you OK? And just praying that she'd be OK. While I was praying, I had a beautiful experience in the corner of my, I call it my little parlor, I love the old-fashioned names, and she's standing there in the corner, her back towards me, and um, she had a short haircut, and she was about the age of 16 or 18 years old, and she turns around so quickly, and her little hair just flips so cute, and she had this smile on her face, and she looked at me and she said, thank you for my body, and then she was gone, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute, did I just see what I saw? Did I just experience her spirit? And so when I got to the doctors, they hurry monitored and the baby's heart rate was just dropping very quickly. So he gave me the option. He said, Christine, you can, we can just let the baby go. Um, And I said, but Dr. Parker, you've seen miracles. He said, yes, I have, and I said, I want a miracle. So he hurry and rushed me in to do emergency C-section. Of course, I was out and under so fast. And, and then when I came to, they told me that they had tried for 23 minutes to resuscitate her, but she had gone. Later over time, I realized I did get my miracle. She let me know that she was OK and that she didn't need any more time here. She just needed to get her body. So after about three days, we had a little um, family gathering down at the cemetery where we were to bury her with her, her brother. Um, a dear brother-in-law came up to me afterwards. and He said, do you know what shalom means? He says it means hello, goodbye, and peace. And I thought, how fitting, because she said hello and goodbye the very same day, but it also brought peace with that.
5: There have been many definitions of the soul, historically. Sometimes the soul is differentiated from the spirit. Sometimes soul and spirit are used interchangeably. But in general terms, when one refers to the soul in uh, literature, ancient or modern, one is referring to the essential core of human identity. But the soul is that which persists after death, and in many cases, that which pre-exists the person before birth. Going back to the very earliest texts that exist, of which we have record or notice in the Western tradition, one would go back about 2000 BC, and one finds reference to the human soul as something which exists independently of and prior to its human form, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a single moment in Western intellectual or religious history when there weren't any number of prominent philosophers, poets, theologians, writing about, arguing for belief in the eternal pre-existence of the human soul. Uh, We go back to Plato, the father of Western philosophy, and we find at least four or five of his dialogues were preoccupied with with positing and arguing for the reality of the soul as a pre-existent entity. It's been argued by any number of contemporary philosophers to just take one common example. The philosopher John Knox, for example, has said that we all intuitively recognize a soul that precedes our mortal form. When we say something like, if I had been born in China, well, obviously, if you're positing an I before it actually has a mortal form, then you intuitively feel the reasonableness right, of positing this self that precedes any particular incarnation. Uh, one could talk, to some, talk about some of the greatest philosophers in the Western tradition. I'm thinking, for example, of the, of the great philosopher Immanuel Kant, who had at least three separate arguments that he made. He was convinced that, that there does exist free will. So, if we're free, there must be some part of us that pre-existed our material form. Uh, A second argument was the fact that he said experience is only meaningful to us because we assimilate it to pre-existent categories of thought. His third argument was more an argument from intuition. That moment of sexual congress must actually simply be housing a spirit which God had already created or had existed eternally. One could go to more contemporary sources and find uh, one of the greatest poems, uh, but little known by Robert Frost, called Trial by Existence, in which he imagines that moment in in a pre-earthly realm when we all had to make the decision as to whether or not to brave the dangers and vicissitudes of this mortal incarnation. And it's really a kind of heroic hymn of praise uh, to the courage of those who made the decision to descend into this mortal sphere. Eastern traditions very frequently believe in a perpetual cycle of of reincarnation, re-embodiment or transmigration of souls. Plato sometimes alluded to his belief in a a cycle of reincarnations. But at other times, Plato's conception was much more linear, and it's the linear conception that really prevailed in Western thinking, that we had one pre-mortal stage of existence. We are now incarnate and we will move on to a third stage of post-mortal existence, but there will be no return to to a mortal state more than just the one time that that, uh, we know here and now.
3: The concept of a pre-mortal existence for human beings is surprisingly common in the ancient world in many ancient texts there are passages that allude to premortal existence or the possibility of it in the bible beyond the bible where a mother in particular a prospective mother is given to understand by angelic announcement or by a dream or something like that that she's going to have a child characteristics are known before the child is born and then of course jeremiah is told before he uh, was formed in the belly god knew him there has to be an object of knowledge i mean god knows him it's not God knew about him or God intended to make him a certain way. God knew him before he was formed. There's a wonderful Christian text uh, called The Hymn of the Pearl. It tells the story of the emperor of India. And he sends a son to go into Egypt, which represents the world. And there's a pearl there that he's lost, that he wants retrieved. But he warns him, when you get there, Egypt is going to be so seductive, so distracting, And he forgets who he is. He forgets what he's there for. And so finally his father, the emperor of India, sends his eldest son, the trusted prince to Egypt to retrieve his younger son and bring him back, remind him who he is and bring him back out of Egypt to India. And that clearly presupposes the idea of a premortal existence.
7: My name's Glenda Christians. I was born in California, spent a lot of my life in Arizona and California, kind of going back and forth. I'm now in West Jordan, Utah, with my four grown children, 13 grandchildren. Um, I've had a wonderful career as a nurse and a nursing professor. I'm also the past president of the American Holistic Nurses Association and a certified holistic nurse with a PhD, so life is good, and I'm retired. That's why life is good. So i think i must have been about four months pregnant it was 1976. i wasn't really happy with my pregnancy and my marriage i was just generally kind of unhappy um one evening um, my husband and i got into an argument and um, i went to bed kind of early just laying in bed feeling sorry for myself thinking what what have i done that was What what am I doing? And so um, I I was praying. And as I was praying and crying, um, I noticed somebody at the door of the bedroom, just over to my left at the door. And it was this beautiful young woman, long, straight, blonde hair, thin, um, um, I'm going to say glowing, uh, because very white, very white, and it seemed a pure... And I was just really struck by her peace. She just had this, like, serious sort of look on her face, but very peaceful. And she and I was calm. You'd think that would wig me out, but no, I was very, very calm. She walked over to the side of my bed, so she was um, to my left. So I was laying down. She's right, right next to the bed, and again, that same beautiful face filled with love and peace and beauty, and and that. Self-confidence, that grounding, and yet humility—I can't explain it all, at all. But there was that—that that connection. I just looked up at her, and I knew that was my daughter. It was almost like she was saying, "Calm down, <laughs> it's gonna be okay." So um, the next thing I really remember is I just fell peacefully asleep, and um, the very next morning I woke up. And it was the first time ever I had felt her move inside
5: of me. In many ancient traditions, uh, Greek, Babylonian, Mesopotamian, uh, there is a, a conception of the human soul as an eternal entity. And one of the ways in which this entity is depicted is generally as a winged creature, a winged soul. And in many of these traditions, there is a specific reference to that moment when this soul loses its wings and thereby prepares to enter mortality, either by way of ascent or descent into this mortal sphere, in which they immerse themselves in a mortal condition prior to reascending to their earlier state. One of the most famous paintings in world art is probably the painting done by Michelangelo, which is in the Sistine Chapel called The Creation of Adam. Most of the focus generally is on that extended hand of God reaching out to touch Adam's finger, the moment when he is infused with life, with the breath of life, the spirit. What isn't as commonly noticed is the background to God the Father, who is actually orchestrating this moment of creation. What you see is, in hovering in the background, an assemblage of personages. Now the question is, who are these people, and what is the meaning of their presentation at that moment of creation? And I'm convinced, as are any number of art historians, that Michelangelo is implicitly here representing his belief in the pre-existent or pre-mortal existence of the entire human family
3: you also have images of the the war in heaven the battle with the dragon that's referred to in the book of revelation and you have the hosts of heaven the question is who are the hosts of heaven some most religious traditions say they're a different form of being intermediate between humans and the divine But others have suggested that these were in fact the pre-mortal souls or the post-mortal souls, I'm not sure if there's much difference really, uh, of humans who are involved in this, who have an interest in the outcome of the war between good and evil, light and darkness.
5: The earliest creation narrative probably of which we have any record is is Atrahasis, uh, an ancient uh, Near Eastern creation narrative in which a council of gods gather they're tired of the labor of providing for themselves through, through toiling in the earth. And so they decide to create a race of beings that will do the labor of the gods. Uh, but it's decided that they need to infuse this shell of clay with a spirit, and that becomes the first human. But they cast a veil of forgetfulness over it, so that it will forget its origin in the heavens.
8: Karina Bayende. I I grew up uh, in a large family. I'm the second oldest of ten in Upstate New York. I uh, met a, a young man that I dated for a year and a half, and I wasn't sure if I should marry him or not. I wasn't sure if he was the right guy for me. I never could get myself to say that I would marry him. One night. I had a dream, and uh, my boyfriend at the time was standing in front of me. He started floating away into the distance, and I noticed that there's this young man uh, standing to my left. And he looked at me, but he did a double take and he was like, wow, she can see me. And he got all excited and almost jumped up and down, like jumping up and down, kind of excited. And I woke up and I was trying to interpret the dream. And the thought came to me that he was my son. And it got me through so many hard times because I knew that I was going to meet my husband and I was going to have a son.
9: My name is Theo, Theodore Byende, AKZ from the Congo, I was born and raised in the Congo. And I moved to Utah three years ago from Georgia because I went to school in Georgia. And when I got to Utah, um, you know, I started going on dates.
8: We decided to give it a shot and go on a date. He had an interview and he didn't know the area very well. So he, his job interview went over and he, I think he got lost. (laughs) And, and then this young, handsome African man <laughs> started walking up towards me and my car and uh, apologized for being late. And, and then we started talking and then we started walking along the shore of the Great Salt Lake.
9: It was a really easy date because uh, we felt like we knew each other before. My reaction when she first told me about the dream, I I just, I was just amazed by that because not a lot of people get that opportunity to see their boy before they actually come to earth. And when we first met the baby, it was like, okay, this is the baby that Karina saw eight years ago.
8: And when I um, was pregnant with him, people would ask me if I was gonna have, if they thought I was gonna have a girl or a boy. And I was like, oh, I'm, pretty certain it's a boy and i'm really happy to have him
4: another type of pre-birth experience is that an unborn spirit appears to a family that cannot have children with the announcement i will be born through a different biological mother but i will come to you
10: My name is Jenny Jones. I'm married to Levi Jones. And we have a family that is quite diverse. I have eight children. And when we were married, I had seven. So he's been quite the trooper to come in and take on seven children. And through um various experiences, I I started to have dreams. And in these dreams, I was I would always see a little girl who was um dark complected. And my husband and I, you know, we were both Caucasian. And um, she had a very dark complexion and, and very, very long black hair down to her waist. And in these dreams, just randomly, she would just come running through. I'd be in a garden setting or going for a walk. And in these dreams, she would come running in and so quickly grab me and say, Mommy, I love you. And she would just hug me and run off playing. A couple of the dreams I had, which it was, it was a little strange to me at the time, but in one of them, she was in a backpack carrier at an older age, maybe like three or four, not at an age I would normally be carrying a child on my back because they're more independent. And in the dream, she wrapped her little arm around me and patted my cheek and said, I love you, Mommy. And it just seemed that there was someone missing. She was knocking and it was repetitive. Over five years, I had these dreams. And one day I woke up and I had had another dream. And in that dream, this woman brought a little boy to me and he also was dark complected. And she said, this one is yours. Even in the dream, I was like, wait, wait, wait. I thought I had a girl coming. And she said, this is yours. And I said, well, how will I know he's mine? And she said, you will know when you hear his name. So I woke up and I was totally confused and went. I was doing my everyday and happened to see a foster care yard sale. It was to help raise money for a foster family, a family of foster children. And the mother who um, was the foster mom in charge of the whole yard sale came and asked me, are you buying these clothes for a child? Um, And I said, no, I'm, I've, feel like I might be adopting a child. And so little did I know that her foster daughter was listening to the exchange, to our conversation. A few months later, it was like three months later, I received a phone call. It was the foster mom at the yard sale. And she said, are you still planning on adopting? And I said, well, yes. She said, well, the girl that I am watching, the foster daughter in my home, has informed me today that she cannot take care of this three-week-old baby. And she has a big support system and a lot of people willing to help her. But she is animate that I find the woman who is at the yard sale with the five kids. She's the mother of this child. And obviously it was tears and I just felt so strong that this was happening. I still had hesitancy because of so many dreams about the girl. So I said, can you bring him over? And she was sick that day, and so she brought him over and actually left him with me to watch. And he, I looked at him, and I asked his name, and she said his name is Jose. And when she said that, I I was taken aback because I have a brother who passed away. I could hear my brother say, my name is Jose and I just felt so strongly that that was the child and he was a joy. He wanted to be there and it was a, it was a journey to get him there permanently. In our religion we have a very special ceremony and I was dressing him in his white tuxedo. And he was 18 months old. Sorry I'm crying. Um and The mother came and helped me to dress him. She was only 16 years old, and she just always told me how grateful she was that we were his family. I remember very clearly one day I walked through my kitchen. I remember taking off the wall phone, and I remember answering, and she was the sister of the birth mom of my first child. She just straight to the point, are you still adopting? And I thought, my goodness, word travels fast. (laughs) Um, Yes, I'm adopting, and um, can I help you? And she said, well, good, because I've got a whole bunch of other kids, and I'm pregnant and homeless, and I'm having a baby, and I want you to take her. I asked her what the gender was at that time, and she said that it was a girl. And the very next day, I received a phone call. It was the mother, and she said, I'm having the baby come to the hospital. So I got there and it was a very quick process. I went in, she handed the baby to me. It was the conclusion of this big long saga. And the special beautiful thing about this specific daughter is that she is an abortion survivor. We were told she would never walk or talk. And she now today is walking and talking and she rides a bike by herself, no training wheels. She's a dancer. She dances in concerts twice a year. And every time she does, I cry because I look at her and I realize she's changed our world as much as we've changed hers.
3: We know
5: that, that many, many narratives, both rabbinical uh, through Hasidic traditions um, also appearing in New Testament literature coming out of a Jewish past, clearly alluded to a commonplace belief in the preexistence of the human soul. We see it in John chapter 9, for example, in the New Testament, where Jesus's Jewish followers asked him who sinned, uh, a blind man or his parents? That he would be born into a state of blindness, obviously presupposing the possibility of acting and, and sinning in a preexistent world. Uh, one of my favorite Jewish legends uh, relates to the nature of preexistence, and it's an explanation for that delicate facial feature called the philtrum. And this is the story of how that comes about. At that moment when a mother and father are about to engender a child, The angel Gabriel goes to the treasury of souls where all angels or all spirits wait for their moment of embodiment. He brings forth the child designated for that couple. And the angel reveals to this spirit who those people are, what his relationship to them will be, what his mission will be in this life that he is about to embark upon. And then having told the spirit all of these things, he places his finger to the lip of the spirit and says, shh. Now you must forget it all. And then he ushers the child into that womb, who having arrived as an infant, is now forgetful of everything that preceded. There's no question, and I don't think any scholar of early Christianity would dispute the fact that belief in the pre-existence of the human soul was commonly accepted. It was a commonplace among early Christian thinkers. Uh, even the most influential thinkers in, in the Christian tradition, like St. Augustine himself, was a fervent defender of belief in the preexistence. at least early in his life he was. His argument was simple. He said, if you're looking for a, a lost key, then you must have known the key before you, you, you knew what to look for. Uh, in a similar way, he says, we're all looking for happiness, we're all looking for eternal joy, therefore we must have known happiness and eternal joy in some state before the one we, we currently inhabit. Uh, Origen, generally considered one of the, the founding fathers of the Christian tradition, wrote the first treatise on Christian doctrine, was absolutely convinced that we had all lived as spirit entities in God's presence. Many heresies, so-called, and pre-existence be- was declared a heresy in the 5th century and then again 6th and 7th centuries, recurrently. There were a few historical reasons for its demise. One was that uh, there was no clear doctrine of creation ex nihilo in the early church. It's not clear from the account in Genesis that God is creating the universe out of nothing. An alternate reading is that he is organizing pre-existent materials. Well, it was early deemed by, by uh, ecclesiastical leaders that a God who, who snaps his fingers and conjures up the universe out of nothing is more majestic and more impressive than a god who merely works, like a a craftsman with pre-existent materials. So if we abandon creation uh, out of materials in favor of creation ex nihilo, then clearly there's no room for a pre-existent spirit. A second would be the threat of the Gnostics. The Gnostics, we don't know a lot about the Gnostics. It's a category that's rather loosely defined. But Gnostics were considered to be one of the greatest threats to Christian orthodoxy in the early Christian centuries. One of the principal beliefs of most Gnostics was that we are eternal beings, that we existed pre-existently and will continue through this life until we are reabsorbed into the eternities. In distancing themselves from Gnostics, the Christian Church wanted to distance themselves from some of their more or less distinctive doctrines. And so pre-existence was increasingly associated with Gnosticism. That was a second reason to expunge it from Christian orthodoxy. And so we find that it virtually disappears from Christian teachings entirely by the 6th and 7th centuries.
3: We do know that uh, in some early Christian councils, the idea of a pre-mortal existence was specifically condemned. The texts indicating pre-existence are gone. They weren't, they may have been suppressed. At any rate, they weren't copied. But we know they must have existed because why would a council have to decree that you can't believe in pre-mortal existence if nobody did? Why was it condemned? Why would people feel the need to do that? I think one reason might be the rise of a doctrine of original sin that humans were corrupt and depraved by nature and you can't very well claim that if they arrived from some glorious world before and you also can't really claim I think that, uh, that some people are of inferior birth or something like that if their earthly birth is only a secondary matter if their original birth is in heaven then you can't say, well, this person is by nature a slave. No, he or she is a child of God, just as you are. It's not in the interest of the ruling class, I think, to grant the possibility that everyone out there is a child of God who came from a glorious heritage, glorious background, a world of glory before this one. So there'd be reason to want to suppress that. We find that there were
5: uh, eruptions of the idea of preexistence that primarily occurred with, with Catholic mystics. One example would be Hildegard von Bingen, a medieval Catholic mystic, beautiful writer, who uh, firmly espoused belief in a preexistence. And there is even a marvelous illustration in one of her books in which it's one can see preexistent souls being funneled into the womb of a pregnant woman. Uh, one of the more interesting episodes in the history of science uh, involves Albert Einstein, perhaps greatest scientific thinker of all time, and maybe another candidate for that title, who would be Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, in some way, uh, I'm not sure how, but Albert Einstein came to be the custodian of Isaac Newton's papers, according to some reports, and he wanted to bequeath Isaac Newton's papers to a deserving institution. He offered them to some of the premier institutions of the day, Uh, they were uniformly rejected. The explanation that is given is that along with those notes and books, papers of his that attested to the development of the mechanics with which he is associated, were copious writings on uh, alchemy, on numerology, on biblical prophecy. And it was thought that his immersion in those esoteric fields, those non-scientific fields, were something of an embarrassment. And, and therefore, the papers were, were, were declined. I don't know where they repose today. But that's an indication of the fact that there was a time uh, earlier in the intellectual tradition when when even scientists were open to any any number of ways of knowing. Uh, today, science has become associated with, with scientific naturalism and materialism. And so we find this, this radical demarcation that dismisses out of hand uh, all kinds of avenues to knowledge or speculative metaphysics that at one time uh, could have been considered just as legitimate as scientific inquiry.
11: I met my husband, Mark, when I was, um, oh gosh, 15, 16. He was one of my brother's best friends, and Mark and I, had been married about six months when we um, purchased a a small two-bedroom townhome. It was it was such a it was such a fun time. We're just we're transforming in this little house into be a home for us to to be in. I was not feeling well, and um, I realized that there was a possibility that I was pregnant. And this was very terrible in my eyes at this time. I wasn't ready financially. I wasn't ready emotionally. And I went to bed, and that night I had a dream. And in that dream, I was in heaven, and I was all dressed in white, and I was speaking with kind of like a distant voice because there wasn't a person there. And there was this little girl. And I said, who is this? And the voice said, she is a spirit child and she is waiting for her turn to go to the earth. She sees how upset you are that she's coming. And approximately a week later, I found out that I was not pregnant. The emotions that that brought on inside of me just hurt me, and um, and I wanted her to come. A few months later, um, I was sitting in my college um, history class, and I was writing something down. And I put my pencil down, and the pencil rolled off of the desk and hit my thigh, and I didn't feel it. I called my doctor and I just said, you know, this is just kind of weird because I'm like experiencing all this numbness. And the next day I um, was sleeping because I had to go to work that night. It was in the afternoon and he called me and um, he said, Jana, he said, first of all, I need to tell you that um, after your examination, yesterday and the blood work that I got back today, I believe you have a disease called multiple sclerosis. We need to get you in to get some testing done. And he said, but herein lies the problem is that Gianna, you are pregnant. In these cases, what is probably the best thing for you to do is to terminate this pregnancy. You can always just get pregnant again later. I was like, you want me to decide between my life and my child's life. And that right there was an easy decision. Of course, my child's life is more important than my own. I did have multiple sclerosis. They found lesions in um, both my brain and my spinal cord, and they felt comfortable that everything could go on. What I remember is that little, heartbeat it showed on the ultrasound you could see it and and just feeling so much peace and and the ultrasound tech just keeps telling me this is good everything's good she looks great when i went to the hospital i um i was um set up to for them to induce the labor and it was scary and it was frightening and it hurt But I always had this strong faith and this almost, it was like a knowledge that I couldn't deny feeling that I needed to have this child and that she was meant to be. And she was born perfect, six pounds, 12 ounces, chubby cheek, brown hair, brown eyed, beautiful baby girl. And everybody that looked at her just looked at her as an angel she was just an angel from heaven and she has been for my entire life so this is my miracle my miracle named Brittany. i'm Brittany. i've learned a lot from this story and the example of my mom and i'm so thankful to be living and for the lives that will be brought on through me
2: It is important that people recognize these experiences because often people will say, my goodness, I had an experience like that, but I didn't recognize that was what it was. And these experiences are quite enlightening. I'm Lara Loft-Green,
12: and my parents are Brett and Sarah Hines. Uh, there were a lot of us kids growing up. My parents had nine children. And it was a very loving home. My parents were very approachable. I could tell them anything. So when I was 10, my mom was pregnant um, with her sixth child. And I don't know why this happened this way at this time, but we were together as a family one evening, and we joined together to say an evening prayer. And I opened my eyes during that prayer. And next to my dad, was standing an angel. I knew exactly who it was the minute I saw him. It was my brother that my mom was pregnant with. And immediately after the prayer, I told my mom what had happened. As I watched my brother grow up, I had those moments of reflection where he would would walk in after being out with his friends or as he grew into a man, and it would just be like, That's the man I saw before he was born. It was so clear that was the same man. You know, sometimes when you have these experiences, you think, who's going to believe me? And so it's not like you talk about them super openly. But when I did get the chance to reflect on it with him as he got older, I could share with him those personality traits I instantly saw in him, like how gentle he was, how strong, what a tender heart he has. So I now have seven children of my own, and being raised um, in an environment where spirituality was openly discussed, and I could go to my parents and tell them anything that I had experienced, definitely has made a huge impact on me as a mother raising my own children. I think ultimately the reason we have these experiences, or that I've had this experience, is because it allows me to see my child in that potential in that role because let's face it as mothers not every day do i see my child as an angel like figuratively speaking but it's like they truly are we want them to be as loved and nurtured as they need to be
5: Uh, probably the most famous literary treatment of pre-existence is Wordsworth's intimations, uh, his his Odin intimations of immortality. What's interesting about this poem is that Wordsworth is not just idly contemplating possibilities, he's actually wrestling with a problem. And that problem is, why do we feel so unsettled here? Why is it that we always feel insatiably hungry for something that we can't fully articulate? Uh, there's a kind of sadness, kind of melancholy that we associate with our mortal condition. And in Wordsworth's poem, he imagines a moment of just illumination of a pre-mortal realm when we were in God's very presence, uh, suffused with His light, would explain the sadness of mortality. Because in our earliest days of infancy, he says, we still carry that heritage with us. We still carry the, the afterglow of being in God's immediate presence. But as we progress through mortal life, in his version, we would be moving further and further away from our origin in the heavens, and that would account for the growing melancholy and sadness that accompanies us through the various stages of life. It turns out Wordsworth was far from alone in his positing of preexistence. Virtually every poet who wrote in the early 19th century and even, even through that century uh, espoused some ideas associated with preexistence another good example would be the poet william blake not just in his poetry but in his personal correspondence he was adamant that he had lived in a preexistent realm it's as i said it would be hard to think of a of a poet who didn't write something on the theme of preexistence
2: people want to know their origins what are my spiritual origins was i did i just spring into existence at conception, or am I an eternal spirit? And the pre-birth experiences answers that. People really want to know where they are going after death. I've talked to several researchers who work in hospice. Uh, One of them is Maggie Callanan, She wrote the international bestseller, Final Gifts. And as a hospice nurse, she sat by the bedside of hundreds of people who passed. And there are experiences people go through before they die. They often talk about home. They're ready to go home. Now, they're not talking about their physical home. They're talking about their heavenly home the place they came from before they were born.
3: You know, one of the texts from the Middle East that is is not often cited, but it really is an ancient text, is the Quran. A lot of people view the Quran as the beginning of the Islamic tradition, and it's it is that, but it's also a 7th century Near Eastern text. For example, when the Quran talks about uh, about death, one of the words that most commonly uses is auda, which means return. We return to God. We don't just die, and we don't just go to God. We return to God. So, for example, one of the passages that I'm most fond of is in the Iranian mystical poet uh, Rumi. One of the earliest passages in his great book, the, the Masnavi, or the couplets, or the spiritual verses, is a passage where he compares the human soul to a reed, a reed flute. And the reed flute, he says, makes such a plaintive, mournful sound because it's been ripped from the reed bed, its natural home. And it's in exile now. And it wants to go back to where it came from. And this is like the human soul because we've been torn away from God. We know we're in exile here. We're away from our natural home. And uh, and Rumi was very, very conscious of that that the human soul is sad in our moments of reflection because we're aliens in this world.
2: There is a wonderful organization that I'm affiliated with. It's called the International Association for Near-Death Studies, or otherwise known as IANS. It is made up of psychologists, doctors, nurses, researchers like myself, and experiencers. There are people in hospitals, you know, who have had a near-death experience and they don't know what has happened to them. So the IANS organization gives them the support that they need after this life-changing experience. Through IANS, we have made incredible friends. A few years ago, Brent and I were invited to the University of Connecticut in Hartford to give our first Ian's talk amongst these wonderful people. And we spoke early in the morning and were very well received. And then we ran down the hall to get into another lecture. And it was Ned Dougherty's. And we were mesmerized by his talk. It's amazing what he saw on the other side.
6: My name is Ned Doherty, and uh I was born and raised in Hazleton, Pennsylvania. That's in northeastern Pennsylvania in, in uh, coal mining country. I grew up in a neighborhood called Donegal Hill because uh, our, our ancestors had migrated from Donegal County in Ireland to Hazleton to be miners. And so my earliest memory uh, back in the 1950s, uh, the mines in that area. Uh, were flooded by Hurricane Hazel in 1954 and uh, that put the area into a depression. So uh, when I graduated from high school uh, as we were all told you needed to leave Hazelton in order to have a future. Well in my schooling I had 12 years of Catholic education at St. Gabriel's High School with the Sisters of No Mercy You could follow that up with four years at uh, St. John's University in New York. And while I was there during the summers, I uh, began a lifeguard out in the Hamptons on Eastern Long Island. I liked the Hamptons so much that after I spent two years in Wall Street, I moved out to the Hamptons and went into the real estate business. Being Irish Catholic, I... uh, naturally had to open a bar of some type. I opened the biggest nightclub in the Hamptons, at a place called Club Marrakesh. When we went to open, we had 400 people waiting in line to get in the opening night. Now it was a, a time when we had just gotten over the Vietnam War, and for the first time in over a decade, people were ready to enjoy themselves, to, you know, what became known as the disco era. And from that opening night, uh, every night for the rest of the summer, we were packed. And the word went out all over New York of this hot club in West Hampton Beach. And we had, uh, you know, celebrities, sports personalities. It became uh, an exciting lifestyle that became almost too movie-like. What was also happening at the same time is I was involved in partnerships uh, that weren't that great. And... uh, one partner in particular had uh, made openings to uh, one of the mafia crime families and, uh, and, and tried to introduce them into our business. So it was a pretty threatening situation over a period of years. On the evening of July 2nd, 1984, that whole lifestyle uh, came to a crescendo because the partner who I had mentioned Uh, He had been arrested that morning for... uh, 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 Actually, it was a DWI he was arrested for, but then he was found in possession of a a substantial amount of cocaine. So, those charges uh, could certainly affect our liquor license. A license could actually be suspended. So, just as the club was opening at 10 in the evening, I went up the stairway into the VIP lounge. He was there and he began yelling at me. The next thing I know, I had knocked him down and I was strangling him on the ground. One of my security personnel came up and grabbed me from behind and, and pulled me away from him. I went out a side exit to a, uh, an alleyway on the side of the club. And as I was hyperventilating, I looked up into the night sky as if calling out for help, perhaps to a god that I had deserted many years before. And all of a sudden my head exploded and I collapsed to the sidewalk. But as my body hit the sidewalk, it seemed like a hole opened up in the sidewalk. I felt myself falling further and further into deep darkness the thought of God and of calling out to God came to me and I began to float up. All of a sudden I found myself sitting up and I was sitting up in an ambulance and EMTs were working on me and I heard the driver of the ambulance announce over a two-way radio that the patient had just coded and he began to accelerate the ambulance and when he did so I turned around and I saw myself lying on the gurney. I was very detached from that body because it wasn't really me. I was the real me who was there at the time, but not in my physical body. And at that point, I floated up and out of the ambulance. And I watched the ambulance going down this two-lane dark highway through the what was known as the Pine Barren Forest between West Hampton Beach and Riverhead, and all of a sudden, I see a friend of mine, and he's smiling at me and telling me everything is okay. I'm going to go on an important journey, and it wasn't okay for me because he was a friend of mine who had been killed in Vietnam. I began to float out into what I describe as the universe, and we were in all of a sudden in this massive. Field of energy going out into the universe and all of a sudden there was a tremendous light that approached us and all of a sudden I was enveloped in this loving bright light I knew this was the light of God I knew I was in the presence of my my master my maker and uh, I was just filled with this loving light that just took away all the pain all the physical pain of my my being, which I, I no longer had because I was no longer in my physical body, I was in my spiritual body. Both my friend and I were greeted by those who I knew as my spiritual brothers and sisters. And as I looked from the left to the right, I see all of these spiritual brothers and sisters who are conveying their support and their love to me inexplicably so and when I looked mostly to the right side I saw family members and friends and loved ones who had passed on before me and then there was a a transition if you will and in this transition I found myself in this garden setting this beautiful celestial garden setting before me in the garden was appeared to me, sitting on a, a like a marble bench, I describe him at the time as the magnificent man. This magnificent man was sitting at this marble bench, and in front of him were a group of toddlers, small, very small children. Um, it was too profound, and and at the time, and 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 too inconceivable to me that this magnificent man was and is Jesus Christ the Redeemer. What I have taken away from this part of the experience since then and the understanding is that the children that I was shown were the children who were intended to be my children in my earthly life but because I saw children as inconveniences, Uh, they had not been born. They had been conceived, but they had not been born because I saw them as inconveniences. And then I noticed the Lady of Light on the right, she comes and with her is a toddler, a little blonde haired, blue eyed boy with the biggest blue eyes I've ever seen. And she brings this little boy over to the magnificent man and who seemed to be protecting this little boy. I was showing something very profound about the life here on Earth uh, that will never be part of my life in those children who were not born. But I am now living in a life where that blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy is my son. I sensed my friend was again at my side and we began to float down. It's at night and all of a sudden we're floating down in front of my home on Elm Street where I had grown up. And my friend turned to me and he said, I wanted you to remember the way we were when you lived here. And the next thing I know, I'm slammed back into my physical body. I could feel the jolt of electricity. I was back in the ambulance suffocating in my gorilla suit, if you will. And it was at the point where the the EMTs finally were able to shock me and, and bring me back to life. I cherished the education and the religious system that I grew up in, but I knew it as a religion. I know Jesus and the angels and the saints as characters in a book that I was taught In religion. Now, all of a sudden, fast forward to July 2nd, 1984, and now I understand once we leave our body, once we are in our spirit, an entire universe opens up to us and we understand who we really are.
3: I think one of the surprising things as you begin to study the so-called near-death experiences is to find how common they are. But I don't think that they were unknown even in antiquity. You have accounts of people in, for example, uh, the Venerable Bede's Ecclesiastical History of England, written in the uh, the eighth century in England. Um, There are are accounts that are clearly what we would call NDEs that meet most of the requirements. There are many more ancient than that. There are some particularly Protestant religious traditions that don't like near-death experiences. But it doesn't matter. People in those denominations have them. And then are told, well, that was satanic, that was bad. But as I say, they're human experiences.
13: we have had a number of opportunities in legal work in other settings to interview people and assess their credibility hundreds and hundreds of times and after a while you know how to ask questions to see if somebody is telling the truth at this point in time i have personally interviewed around 550 people who've had near-death experiences i was a skeptic not in the sense that i just flat out didn't believe them But just as I would approach a case that I was involved in, I wanted to find out if this was real or not. I had the opportunity to meet a little girl named Crystal, and she had drowned in a swimming pool. She was not expected to pull through. But on the third day um, of being in a coma, the doctor, who was Dr. Melvin Morse, had a nurse run in who said, she woke up and he went in and talked to her. So he asked her, "Well, what happened to you, Crystal? Can you can you describe what happened? How this happened?" And he expected, "Well, I got bumped into the pool, you know, or whatever happened. How she drowned?" And she said, "Oh, you mean when I went to heaven and played with Jesus and played with these little kids who are waiting to be born?" And so I wanted to interview her and having her say things like, yeah, Jesus took me and he asked me if I wanted to go back and I said, no, I like it here with you. How could this be made up?
1: I've seen a lot of spiritual phenomena in the emergency department, which could not be explained by medical science. I arrived at work one day and my colleague was trying to resuscitate a woman who had drowned in a hotel pool. While they were trying to resuscitate her, I became aware of her presence, her spiritual presence outside of her body. And she was just kind of getting accustomed to it. And then all of a sudden she was gone. And I thought, where did she go? And as I thought that, I looked up at the cardiac monitor and she had a heartbeat again. Nobody can explain that. Those are the kind of experiences that I've had in the emergency department. People talk a lot about near-death experiences, about these out-of-body experiences people have when they're dead or near dead. And there's been a lot of proposed uh, explanations for these. For example, it's common for people to say it's caused by an anoxic brain injury, and that is, not enough oxygen to the brain. Some people think that it's caused by a temporal lobe seizure. But when these are looked at with any measure of scrutiny, None of them really hold up to explain why somebody's having this experience. My friend, Dr. Bruce Grayson, is a psychiatrist. He's an MD. He started the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of uh, Virginia. One study, for example, showed that as many as 20% of patients that have a cardiac arrest with a heart attack uh, have an out-of-body or near-death experience during their cardiac arrest. One out of five. It highlights the notion that we are these... uh, beings, these uh, eternal beings, if you will, that come in and out of the body at times. And sometimes that happens at birth, and sometimes it happens at death as well.
9: The automobile accident we had was really quite a a a terrifying thing. We had been on family vacation and uh, I was driving the car. Tamara was sitting next to me and actually holding onto my hand. And she had reclined her seat back um, and was taking a nap. And I was driving with my left hand. I had set the cruise control at 75. That was as fast as I could legally go. I was hurrying. And uh, the two boys were in the back. Griffin, our toddler, was in his car seat. And Spencer was sitting behind me, who was at the time was seven years old. There was crosswinds and reports of different things, but what I believe happened is that I, um, I may have just dozed off for just a second when you just nod off, but the car swerved to the right. I overcorrected to the left and lost control of the car. And it began to roll not off the road, but down the road at, at 75 miles an hour. It was a horrific accident. Um, I blacked out for that. I don't remember actually rolling. But when the car came to a stop, I was completely conscious. And the first thing I heard was Spencer, my seven-year-old, crying hysterically in the back seat of the car. What, what had actually happened is that both of my legs had been crushed and shattered. The left leg was eventually amputated above the knee. My back had been damaged. My rib cage was damaged. My lungs were collapsing my right arm had almost been torn out there was no muscle through the rotator cuff or anything holding it on and i had a large laceration under the arm and then the seat belt had cut through my abdomen and ruptured all my intestines i, I was an absolute mess i had no idea all i knew is i was in pain i was losing consciousness i couldn't breathe and here was my son crying hysterically in the back seat But that's when I realized no one else was crying. And it was in that horrific moment um, that I knew, first of all, that Tamra was gone. And Griffin, uh, my my little toddler, um, the car seat had broken up. And he had been ejected from the car. And my first thought was, where's my little boy? And yet it was. Even in the asking, it almost felt like the answer came, and I—he's gone, he's gone—and it was the most horrific, hellish moment. I, I don't—I don't share it to be graphic or 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 morbid, but I wanted to to set up the contrast. There I was in the darkest moment of my life, you know, half the family's gone. I've got a hysterical seven-year-old, and I'm losing consciousness. And it was in that moment that light came. It felt like tangible light. It felt as if light came and surrounded me. And this light was, was loving me and comforting me in this darkest, darkest moment of my life. And I began to rise above, or it felt like I was rising above the accident, like I was being delivered out of all that trauma. And it was a little bit confusing. I mean, I, I was wondering, how, how am I OK? Suddenly, there was Tamra. I mean, she was absolutely gorgeous and radiant. There was no head trauma. She was beautiful, just like she had always been to me, but even more so. And we began to communicate. And she was literally telling me, Jeff, you, you've got to go back. You've got to go back. You cannot come. You can't stay here. You've got to go back. And it was an interesting experience of choice. Because there I was looking at the woman that I, I loved more than life. And yet I knew I had a little boy crying in the back seat of that car. And uh, I got to make a choice. What was I going to do? And I, I chose to come back. Now, I said the most profound goodbye I'll ever say. And I found myself moving freely around a hospital. Now, I I have no concept of time in this bubble of light. I was later told people had arrived at the scene. They were able to get Spencer out of the car, who was banged up a little bit, but my little seven-year-old was not physically injured terribly. He literally walked away from the accident. With the extent of my injuries, they they knew they could do nothing for me there, so I was life-flighted to the closest level one trauma center.
1: Jeff Olson was badly injured and he was flown to my trauma center. And when I went in to see Jeff, he was unconscious and there was a team of physicians and other providers taking care of him. And everything slowed down in a sense. Everything became quiet, like watching a TV show with the volume turned off. And standing above the gurney in the air was his deceased wife Tamara whom I never met, but who I knew immediately. The physicians, the providers, were still talking to each other. They were still doing everything that they were doing. But for me, everything was quiet except for Tamara, who expressed her profound gratitude for the care that Jeff was receiving.
9: I was in the hospital for over five months. I had 18 surgeries in total. But probably the most profound thing about my hospital stay was at the end of the hospital stay. I had gone from ICU to surgical recovery, and I was actually in the rehabilitation unit. It was after all of that, and I was actually just weeks away from going home. I rolled on my side, and my brother was there, my younger brother. My two brothers had just been by my side continually. I think they almost lost their jobs to be with me, and I recall falling asleep and thinking, wow, it feels so good to go to sleep. I haven't slept for months. I was in this deep, beautiful sleep when that light came. But this time, the light dispensed. It went away. It was like a fog lifting off a lake, and I was in the most beautiful place. And it felt so physical. I could feel everything as if the energy was surging through every cell of my body, and yet, I believe I was out of the body, and and, and yet it felt so real, so so physical. And I was running about, just gleefully thinking, I'm home, when I got the message, I'm not here to stay. And, And at that time, there was this corridor off to my left. And I knew intuitively, I'm to go that way. And so I began to make my way down the corridor. And as I did, at the end of the corridor, I could see a crib. Now, Griffin, my little boy who had been thrown from the car and killed instantly in the accident, I mean, I I can't explain the grief and pain in those months in the hospital thinking about what had happened, but I raced to this crib. And there was my little boy, I mean, sleeping as peacefully as when I had glanced in that rearview mirror. And I, I, I picked him up, and it was so physical. And there I was holding him. And and I began to weep just thinking, wow, how can this be? And as I held him, I felt this intense presence come up behind me. I felt these divine arms come and wrap around me and my little boy and hold us. And, And it's like the lid just came off of everything. And there was this pure communication that literally said, there's nothing to forgive. Everything is in pure divine order. It, it, it's almost like it was this higher perspective of having always been and 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 that this life was simply a stage or, or or a ball game or or a you know an act in a actless endless series of eternal lives it was incredible In all that peace and beauty i I chose uh, to to kiss my little boy and give him back to turn him over to to the divine and and as I did that, then I woke up, you know, in the hospital bed back to the amputation and the injuries and all that had been going on, and, um, and yet I had a little bit different perspective about love and about the divine and about even my own existence and what that looked like in an endless realm of eternity.
4: In the search for truth, there are a variety of approaches in our world. When you go into human behavior, we deal in probabilities. If one person has a certain kind of reaction to a given experience, that may be interesting, but it's not proof yet. But when 50 or 100 people have experience A, and consequence B shows up, it increases the likelihood that what we're
3: dealing with is a true phenomenon. I would say about these stories, of near-death experiences, pre-birth experiences, if even one of them is true, then the whole edifice of naturalism, you know, pure materialism, is false. It only takes one counterexample to invalidate the whole scheme that there's nothing real beyond the material body, the material world, death ends everything. You just have to find one counterexample. And those experience, experiences shouldn't be written off because of dogma or ideology saying, this is not possible, they should be examined.
5: There has never, to my mind, been discovered a compelling argument against pre-existence. One could throw a dart at a chart of different eras of human history. And no matter where that dart landed, you would find representatives from poetry, from philosophy, from theology, espousing and teaching belief in the pre-existence of the human soul.
1: And whether we're talking about a near-death experience or a pre-birth experience, these experiences that many mothers in particular have about their yet-to-be-born child, are much more common than is appreciated simply because people are reluctant to talk about it.
2: We know through research that people are spiritually hungry. We know that people are having these spiritual experiences. And the heavens are speaking to us. We want to make sure that we're listening.